Good evening and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser tonight. Tonight I'm going to try and uh, do a little bit of a recording about the uh, first couple of ideas for uh, RPG a Day. Um, I had intended to, to take part in the RPG a Day for 2020, but um, to be honest, I mean, I'm so busy with... Uh, day job is quite busy and then I've also got, uh, I've had quite a few uh, charity sessions that have been going on the last little while. Plus, we've had some developments in some of our ongoing campaigns. So I just, I've, I've been very busy with uh, gaming stuff uh, in general. So I have not really had time to uh, uh, to set aside time every day. I'm also trying to get my ass back in shape. And I mean, an hour working out uh, is not going to find uh, time for itself. So I need to try and do that as well. The quarantine quarter is what I'm calling the extra 25 pounds I'm sure I've gained over the past of that. So that is the reason I'm not doing it, but I do find myself with a little bit of extra time uh, tonight. So I'm going to um, to jump in and uh, do a little bit of a recording about that. All right, so the first four things I missed were beginning, change, thread, and vision. Um, huh, so let's put it all together into one here. Beginning and change and thread and vision makes me think of uh, starting something new, um, having vision for what you're going to be putting together and the thread is going to be the tapestry which new campaign is going to weave together so um with that thing let's talk about uh i guess what what the state of my last couple of uh uh, weeks i guess months maybe but (laughs) since my last recording um for gaming uh, has been um has been pretty good i mean we've uh our ongoing campaigns have been quite good uh, still. Um, the two things that we've had hiccups in are... Well, that's not true. Not two. One. One game we've had a hiccup in um, has been our Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea uh, campaign. Uh, we've had two sessions now where there's been just really back-to-back things that have been really... I, I fucked up on two different encounters, and it's led to some pretty dramatic changes for our characters, and it's led to um, one character death as well now. So, um, I mean, the, fortunately, like the, the players seem to be taking it pretty well, but, um, the, uh, that one, I just, it was, uh, uh, the campaign was, I was sort of nudging that one in one, uh, direction to sort of open up things. And I put my thumb a little too heavily on the scale with a series of encounters to try and, uh, you know, use an old school way of sort of, uh, directing the the players with that this you know when they were involved in one encounter that they try and tell the guy that they cannot win it um but that didn't work out and then also uh, a consequence of that is uh that uh one of the uh players oh well not one of the players but i mean all the players uh ended up getting um i used an, an adversary in ash that has a particularly pernicious hold person effect that lasts for like an hour and change so like it was it was a fucking brutal encounter the upside of that particular encounter is it it has spawned a whole series of podcasts about the use of hold person in uh in games so so that's good you know uh and then the the next session for that we were down a whole bunch of players just because of uh it was a weekend at gen con and some other people were busy with other shit um so we had it we were down some players so the the people we could bring to the table just were not there um uh, one player misjudged what his abil- effect, his ability would work on. There's one ability he had that he, uh, and I don't know how I feel about this. Like it's, I, I feel like the character, the, like if the either the player metagamed it, um, 
or did not metagame it, uh, depending on how you want to look at things. If either the character metagamed it thinking, oh, this is an adversary on which this ability will not work, so he decided not to use a really effective ability. He, his version of Hold Person, which would have taken one uh, uh, one of the adversaries out of the fight for the duration, um, the, fight, the adversaries that were facing were a bunch of ogre giants from uh, the um, Al-Qadim... Uh, a Monsters Compendium. I can't remember if it's actually from the Land of Fate box set uh, or if it's from the Alcadine Monsters Compendium, but it's one or the other. It's from the setting in any event. It's just an, an amazing... Imagine a cross between, like, a 20-foot gorilla with giant curving tusks coming out of its jaw with one singular eye uh, and uh, just an awesome visual. And Where the characters now find themselves is this jungle, so I, I was like, hey, great, I can get to you know make use of these guys. Well, it turned out that without that whole person, uh, the fight was really, really, really hard, and one character is currently dying, and another character is currently dead. Um, so, you know, well played, Kev. Um, and it put it for that particular campaign too. It puts into there's a couple things that the, the characters had uh, or the players had talked about um, afterwards. I, after the the encounter with all the whole persons. I uh, I asked the characters how what the players what they thought of, of the like how they felt about the encounter and I was because I was really not feeling great about it I felt that I, I really uh, kind of fucked up both in terms of the um, the way that I presented the encounter uh, and um, or the way I designed the encounter and the way I presented it as well I should have made it a little clearer what uh, sort of the you know what what their options were but you know uh, there's only I don't know how much. I, I don't know. It was just it was a, a poorly designed encounter, and uh, that led to some some really useful substantive feedback and and so, some good uh, perspective on what some of the players in my group really want out of uh, you know out of their gaming experience. And in particular, one of, one of the players uh, was uh, really not happy with having to sit out a whole bunch of turns, you know. And it's 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 interesting because it's um, you know for like the I think like the the discussion that I've heard about the um, the hold person, use a hold person spell in general is uh, uh, it's productive uh, and, but I think what it misses is the assumptions you're making uh, from the from the get-go, you know um, the the assumption that uh, my, my buddy uh, Colin actually, Spike Pit uh, who uh, was the character who was affected by it and quite a bit uh, for, for that one, he was also in a previous encounter tagged with a enthralling, uh, I can't remember what it was, some kind of enthralling something or other spell. So his character was also standing like kind of a, you know, a mute idiot for, for a while and because of that spell. And, um, the, um, the challenge, I didn't realize that, to be honest, that it was, he was hit, uh, multiple times by that. And in these, in those games, like we do run it as an old school game, but we've got use of this, uh, meta currency, a narrative meta currency called Astonishing Fortune that regular listeners will be well aware of. That, um, you know, uh, that normally gives at least one get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, for those kind of effects, and for whatever reason, I think his was just spent on something else uh, at that time, and then there was just multiple uses of this freezing, you know, thing, and I allowed one player to sort of make another save by spending an astonishing fortune uh, from his, but unfortunately, that uh, uh, Colin didn't have another one, and um, the, uh, the what the um, his feeling was, was that if his character is not able to do anything in the thing, then the player is not contributing to the to the session, the scene. And, I mean, if you're going to take that anytime your character is not able to participate in a scene um, as being that the player is... Uh, you know, the players are likewise not able to participate, 
Uh, then, I mean, like, anytime your character dies, that's also a threat, or anytime your character is down, that's also another opportunity for that to, you know, you to be out. Anytime your character is uh, not in a scene is likewise going to be, you know, another time when your character, the player is uh, not part of it. And, I mean, that's just, uh, you know, in it, I, I understand there's a difference between the what he I think meant was that in a combat scene, in a combat scene where the char- the character is involved, then the player has nothing to do. And I mean, I haven't seen that uh, quite as as um, uh, pronounced a reaction to, to that uh, before from any of my other players uh, in the you know, well, the while we've been playing this. And it could be that the players are just not saying anything. But the thing is, is also. Um, Setting aside whether they're good or bad or whatever else, the first assumption that I think is missed in, in that conversation is what the players are signing up for. You know, what is it? What's the play experience that you are looking for? If the play experience is going to be one that is closer to the um, the modern uh, games where you are talking about characters always, you know, the things will generally um, mitigate in favor of the players getting, you know, making saves, or if they do fail their save, they're going to be able to make another save quite soon. There isn't the kind of, like, your character is out of commission for, you know, uh, 20 minutes or whatever for most of the fight the way that it is in some old school games, particularly with some of those games, some of those things like, you know, blindness that's permanent and whatever. Um, The more modern games, like, starting with 4th, 4th was a 5th edition definitely does this as well, too, but it started with 4th. 4th is the thing that dramatically cut back any kind of uh, really... Like, it's the thing that really took a character out of the uh, equation. Things like uh, petrification, things like whole person, things like uh, charm or, you know, dominator, things like that. And it, it built in a lot of opportunities to to try and get out of that save much, much faster than what it could, even in 3rd edition or Pathfinder. And the um, th- what that assumes... And I mean that cuts both ways. That cuts both in, you know, towards the uh, uh, for the players and for the adversaries. So it makes for a much more frenetic kind of fight because the players will be, you know, their saves will be uh, coming up quite, uh, you know, quite sooner. Same thing with the uh, the adversaries. Adversaries will have an opportunity to make their saves a lot sooner. So um, there's more of a ticking clock of what's going on with with that. It also means that uh, tactics that would rely heavily on those incapacitating powers, like, you know, the save or, it's not save or die, but a save or suck, um, it's effectively save or die, because the character's taken out of the fight, um, that means it's also, a, a abilities that your characters cannot make use of as well, too, and it relates to a lot of the stuff where it, you know, like critical hits, critical hits, if you use them for both characters and, and adversaries, uh, it, it dramatically, has a dramatic effect on, and can really suck for players sometimes, same thing with, um, you know, if you're using uh, realistic damage, you know, quote-unquote realistic damage from, you know, uh, likes the way that uh, RuneQuest or, like, you know, uh, GURPS or things like that cut. Again, if it cuts both ways, then it really sucks for the players. A recent uh, experience I had with that was using my shield break rules on some enemies. And I very quickly realized that, like, uh, what the shield break rules were allowed for was uh, for characters to um, to be able to you know, block the, uh, uh, block an attack. They could destroy their shield to suck up one hit. Well, for the players, that's great. Cause I mean, it gives them a little bit of get out of jail free card. And for about two or three encounters, I was allowing some enemies to do that too. And it's st- stupidly overpowering. It, it makes, uh, characters feel like assholes, at least in, in a, a D and D style campaign. Cause even big, big hits can just be sucked up by some 
puny goblin or some puny knoll or whatnot with a, uh, a shield break. Um, so that kind of sucks and it negates the, the cool thing the players did. So what I end up having to do is, is just to basically, um, you know, uh, to, to, uh, set up a, um, set it up such that, uh, the, the NPCs could not use that same thing. Uh, and that's something that made me think a little bit more about, uh, well, let me, so I'm gonna put a pin in that whole, whole person thing and the, and the distinction, because I want to talk about the, uh, my recent experience with fifth edition. So give me, I'll be right back with that. So we also, uh, recently had a, uh, one shot. We had a, actually a couple of one shots. We had one that was our first of our, uh, charity sessions, uh, playing, Savage Worlds set in kind of a uh, ancient Rome setting where the uh, characters were playing a bunch of supernatural, kind of a weird fiction supernatural thing uh, with the characters playing investigators, um, uh, investigating supernatural stuff. It's kind of like an, almost like an X-Files or something akin to that type thing. Um, we played two sessions of that, actually. One that was the actual charity session, then we were down a bunch of players at another, so we just uh, ran a, uh, a pickup uh, one shot for it, and then this past weekend, I also ran a session of fifth edition D and D using uh, or set in the uh, Eberron setting, and uh, each of those settings was a much more heavily scripted thing than what the uh, previous ones were. So it was a little more story based, uh, a lot more plot driven, but the response from the players was much. Uh, I mean, it's a, you know, change of, of scenery and whatnot too, but like in particular, the Eberron session just felt really, really, really fucking good. It was a really good session, uh, partly, um, I don't know, just, it was, it was a really solid session. And I, I've been thinking quite a bit since then about the systems and uh, to see whether, particularly because of, uh, the, the way things sort of worked out in the last couple of, uh, you know, the last couple of sessions with our Ash game. Um, and I don't think that, I mean, I don't think system is, is everything for this, but like one of the things that definitely made, um, some of the, like say our Eberron session a little different is that the players had stuff on the table, on the table, on their character sheets that specifically they could engage with, um, in a non combat format. So they could, they could effectively game, you know, without just indulging in just, you know, naked role-playing. Um, as it were, in the sense of like, there's no mechanics that are interfering with the role playing, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with naked role playing by any means. Where there's you're not interfering, you're not using rules to govern the conversation or anything like that. You're just sort of playing it out with the other uh, the other party. But um, you know, there was something that was to be said for that. In a related note, too. So I like after that session, I started thinking about what made that session work so well. And I also started thinking about the um, the way that uh, you know the different systems, uh, because one of the things obviously that fifth edition does, for one, I mean, it does definitely make characters a little more durable. Although, you know, there's any character, any game that says, "Oh, the characters are, are too durable," like you're just not trying hard enough to hurt the players or hurt the characters, I should say, not the players. Um, and uh, to, to give them a sense of risk, you know, with, uh, with the game. And with 5th, we, we only had one fight, but it was a, with a boss fight that felt particularly, I asked the guys afterwards, and it felt particularly uh, challenging for them, you know. I nearly killed two of them 
Uh, well, that's not true. I mean, they're, they're, two of them were hurt, but they weren't even making death saves. They were up before the they had to make their first death save. So, you know, it was not so, so bad. Um, but the thing is, it's the peril, you know, and the interesting thing with that one was, and this is more structure of the actual adventure, was the, the, the violence there was a part of the story and integrated, like the, the stakes of the fight and the outcome of the fight uh, both had either stakes or it, you know, developed the story further. So it was, um, you know, I mean, it was an interesting uh, change from our, uh, from the other games, uh, not only because, you know, the the violence in, um, in our uh, sandbox games uh, can often be incidental. Uh, it is not, we try to wrap it in as part of a plot, but it begins as an incidental uh, approach to it. You know, like it can, I've talked about how it can be, you can be doing world building with those bigger things as well too, but it is, it's adjacent or incidental to the, uh, to the story. Um, sometimes there is stuff that is actually built into the actual story for sure. Um, but the, the actual, um, the actual violence itself in, in the most of the violence is incidental. It's either, um, something because of a location that they need to deal with, like the, the Knoll, the overall war against the Knolls that we had recently in our Night Below campaign, which lasted, I think, like eight sessions or so, was, um, you know, I mean, there was a ton of violence in there, and it sort of, it told the story in the sense of that it was about the liberation of Featherfall, but I'm not sure that the the violence, I didn't to make any effort to try and structure the the combat encounters in that in a way that told a story or that facilitated the story. It was just an agnostic reality in the world where it didn't care one way or the other about the story the players were going through. It was just there and the players just had to deal with it. And um, I had a similar thing in our Ash game as well too, which was likewise a, you know, that, that war with the um, Second Sons and that took, it felt like it took for fucking ever too. And I, I think that what I need to do, one of the ways that, that the, the um, Savage World set uh, um, one shot, the first one in particular, it, it had one combat encounter in a four hour period, and it was a very minor one. Same thing with the second one, that was three hours. Um, and in the Eberron one, we only really had, there was two violent encounters, but one of them was really like a proper combat encounter. One of them was more incidental. It was an interrogation that also got a little physical. Um, and both of those felt more intrinsic to the story, uh, and the, as, as to what's going on. And, and I don't mean in the sense that, you know, there is the story in the sense of like, there's a script the characters are following. I mean, a story in the sense that there are clear characters that they are, that have agendas that will run up against the players and that the outcome of that conflict between agendas will have a consequence on the broader status quo of the of the campaign that's what i mean by story not like you're going to follow through and do this xyz and i knew that each beat in fact the players in both games went well off the beaten path on uh so more so in the eberron game but it was great really really great the way the characters uh, decided to sort of veer um veer left on things um and it got me thinking about i mean for one the weather system is the thing that is facilitating better story in uh, in those other games. Fifth edition, having not run it now for quite some time, for that one session, 
fucking great. Really, really good. I made all the uh, pre-gens. I made six pre-generated characters for, for that particular adventure. And uh, the characters were uh, a, a shit ton of fun to, to develop. They were fourth level, so they had some stuff behind them, including their like subclass. So uh, each of the characters got to feel very, I don't know, interesting and unique. And also the combat system, uh, I, I was able to make the encounters fun and tactical without um, and turn my mind to what would be a, like effectively a balanced encounter but also improvise some cool stuff you know like the I, I created my own monster for uh, for the this one thing it was based on a, a reskin version of one character but like that's something I love doing but the combat encounter felt really really good as well too and I've, I've had that happen in our, our uh, 2e games as well but because of the way that that particular game is designed to roll out, I don't spend as much time on, at least not in our Night Below game, thinking of specific set-piece encounters. It's also a lot harder in those games to judge what a, you know, quote-unquote fair encounter is. I genuinely thought our Ash encounter, this most recent one, was a fair one. And, I, and same thing with the, um, you know, the other uh, campaign, uh, the, or the previous encounter, the one with the what? What? The, so the first encounter with the whole held person, it was these great race of yith that were there. These Lovecraftian monsters that had these ray guns that could either disintegrate you or evaporate you. And XP wise, for what you get for defeating them, it's not substantially more than what the characters have uh, defeated in the past. And uh, when they fought one of them, they kicked the shit out of it. Like they they quickly learned they needed to disarm the thing, and then went that way. But once they they just zigged and when they should have zagged and went the wrong way and they had four or five of them that they were encountered at the same time and they were cut down and then every round where the characters failed to save they would just be brought out of the uh, out of the encounter so it was really a really really difficult adversary and um the downside also as well too we one of the players uh a lot of the spells we we do have characters who have spells they're about fifth between fifth and sixth level uh, respectively for all the different characters but the difficulty is is that there's no casters really no no dedicated casters so as they're getting up what we're seeing is the consequence of having nothing but fighters in the group um we don't have any proper clerics we don't have any proper mages so those encounters um i'm realizing are a lot harder without those um you know uh exponential mages or whatever uh quadratic mages i can't remember what the saying is linear fighters quadratic mage i guess but um so the, it just you know and, and similar to that second encounter it, i uh, i assumed I'm like well because of this character's one ability i'm going to assume that only two of these things are the things they're going to face and sure enough the player didn't use the ability that would have helped to even the odds so it just ended up being a bit of a, a beating uh, there also wasn't there wasn't a huge amount of opportunity to do this necessarily but there wasn't any opportunity to um, to really change the uh, the dynamics, no one used any magic items, you know, um, that they had on them. They just jumped into to melee with these things, and melee with a giant in any version of D anD D is rarely going to end well for the players. Um, so, yeah, I just I don't know. I mean, it, it was a uh, couple of encounters that were just really unforgiving, and the um, the margin of error for the players in those games in uh, old school games is definitely a lot slimmer. And when the characters are lower level, I didn't, you know, the stakes for that aren't really as high because when you lose a character at those lower levels, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's all right, well, I lost my character, I'll make a new one and we'll roll them up. But 
for the most recent characters, you know, for these new ones. Um, our first character death we had in our Ash game was at the at the culmination of a amazing siege. It was great. The characters seized a castle, but they lost a friend. It was a great story. This time, the character died because of a random encounter, you know, and like that's that's not um, that is definitely part of the old school style of play. But because we we've already incorporated so many mechanics that help the characters be around for a longer time. And, and I get them closer to more of a modern feel. It's really, uh, that's a really dissatisfying story development. And while it is true that in the old school style of play, that is absolutely what can happen. It's just a risk you run. We've already taken steps towards that. And we've had the same characters around, for the most part, for a year and a half. And an inconsequential bullshit death because of, a, you know, a, a bad... Um, you know, it's a, a badly designed encounter on the part of the DM, or or one that at least was overpowered from what I thought the players would be able to uh, handle given their abilities. Whew, it just did not uh, work out that way. And I compare that to the modern games, and like, you know, the the reason that we've got um, modern games that that do make those allowances for the players, and the things that I, I've joked about in the past about uh, it being a um, what do you call it? Uh, it being a um, a game that uh, you know treats treat things on easy mode and whatever else. Well, I, I don't. I having scaled up the difficulty of some of these encounters, I certainly don't believe that anymore. And I also, um, I also think that if the players are not wanting that style of experience, and I'm not saying that all the players are feeling this way, but if you've got one player who genuinely is that dissatisfied with the how the the story is is treating their characters at that point, then you need to really reconsider how you're approaching and how you're structuring that. You know, um, particularly like if there are other players who are there who are there and thinking because of the way how effective and how deadly these spells are, that whole cutting it both ways thing, if that's why the players are there, well then you got tension because you got some players who want to have those spells and those effects being that deadly and you got other ones who really don't want that in their game because they it interferes with their uh, substantially interferes with their ability to uh, you know uh, to, to actually engage with the story because uh, again everyone plays two games for different reasons and whatnot and running 5e got me so I started looking at two of my other more modern games that I I like quite a bit that are fantasy games Pathfinder 1 and Pathfinder 2 and it just so happens today that um, Puffin Forest one of the YouTube channels the D&D YouTube channel, so which I realized today has like 700,000 subs, so it's a huge, very popular channel. He did a review of Pathfinder 2nd, and he really helped me put my finger on what it is I'm, that I'm not crazy about Pathfinder 2. I adore Pathfinder 2 from levels 1 to 5, and after that, it gets bonkers. Like, once you start incorporating a bunch of, um, you know... Uh, there's a lot of moving parts in that particular game. And the more stuff you get in your character sheet, the more it becomes just an ungodly mess. And I've, I felt that way about uh, Starfinder. I've mentioned that in the podcast before, too. That Starfinder, I, I really, really, really enjoy those lower levels. But as soon as the numbers get so high, they become meaningless to me. You know, and not intuitive in any meaningful way. Like, when I uh, look at my attack bonus at, say, 10th level, and I'm adding say 14 or 20 to my you know 14 to say 18 to my role i don't know what's a good role then you know because like or or at least the difference between rolling a 22 and rolling a 31 doesn't feel as as um as gut level instinctual 
as like, say, rolling an 18 or a rolling a 24 or something like that in a uh, either a lower level game uh, or in that bounded accuracy you get in 5th edition. Uh, or even, I mean, in um, to a degree, Thaco definitely uh, has a very, especially for fighters, as you get higher level, it's very, very swingy, but you can spend a lot of time at low levels in those games. You know, we've played more than 50 games in our AD&D game, um, and the characters are barely... I mean, we're using training as well, too, so there is a way of slowing things down, but our AD&D second game, the characters are still at most, like, uh, one of them is 7th level. Uh, so, um, I guess, I mean, that's a really rambly uh, way of saying... The thing with those two games, what Puffin Forest, what he kind of came down on uh, was that because of all the different fiddly moving bits in that particular game, it's just too much game for him. Um, and I don't mean to say that he's not enough for that game. It's just there's more there than than what he needs. The way he described it was like in a four-hour session, if you're spending an hour talking about math and stuff like that to, to get it up, then this time you could be spent doing other things. And the other thing he mentioned, which I feel very um, is very true for my experience with both that and 5th edi- uh, edition D&D is that where most of his two-hour session before with other games like D&D 5th and stuff like that, it would be about a 20-minute um, mechanics prep period and the rest of the period would be spent um, prepping the story in the game and whatnot and the story beats and whatever. Whereas with Pathfinder 2, you're spending an awful lot of time balancing that encounter to make sure the encounters fit, to make sure the you know that things don't go sideways. It... Um, uh, it does not allow for a very large... That's not true. You can have large encounters, but they can really... They're very swingy. They can go both ways because of how crits work in that. Because everyone is... There's crits on everything, including critical fumbles, that the game can be very, very swingy. And there are ways to mitigate around that. Um, but, you know, rules is written. It can become a very unpredictable game. And the really the most satisfying stuff is digging in for those really crunchy tactical fights, but they can't all be like that. Um, the Complex Games Apologist, another guy who uh, has a YouTube channel, he made a comment of saying, you know, the thing that I found that he found exhausting about Pathfinder 2 was that you don't get a chance to breathe. And what he means by that is that for Pathfinder 2, the, the, the whole game is run through the game lens, which means you're never getting out of gamist mode. You're never not thinking about the mini game or whatever else that you're in there. And I don't think he used this analogy, but I think of a review I saw about uh, on another YouTube channel called, um, what was it called, Renegade something or other. Um, And I'll think of it maybe by the end of the podcast, but he talked about Michael Bay films being a thing where you never take a breath. There's constant movement and there's constant simulation. There's constant shit going on, which means your brain never has a moment to take a breath and be like, oh, this is what I'm watching. And... That's kind of that's not the, directly the same thing as what Pathfinder Two is, but it definitely means. And I, I get what the complex games apologist is talking about when he says that it is you know you never get a chance to breathe because if everything goes through the lens, and so a lot of story games are like this too, where everything goes through the lens of the of the game mechanics, then it can be very exhausting because you're constantly doing that and you're not allowing for the improvisation and, and whatnot, and. A, a counterpoint to that might say, "Well, look, you don't need to do that. You can just you can just role play it out." But then, why have it in the rules that everything goes that way? How do you make the distinction between the things that do and do not go through that that lens? And I mean, there's I guess there's a way of, you know, 
Um, I would say maybe distinguish between, again, using a cinematic language here, like uh, montages and using specific actual scenes. You know, a scene that is going to be a substantive scene with dialogue and whatnot, then that's something where you might engage the rules. Something where it's just glossing over, you may just make one dice roll or something like that, or, or not make dice rolls at all. Um, and when I was recently talking to my buddy um, Anthony from uh, Runeslinger, which actually I learned is intended to be Runes Linger, another YouTuber, um, he mentioned, and actually was one of the uh, driving forces behind RPG A Day, one of the things he said was, how surprising he found it that when people played Call of Cthulhu or RuneQuest or whatnot and, and kept thinking, oh, I'm failing all the time on my dice rolls. And his response is, well, why are you picking up dice for everything? You know, when something matters and has consequence and dramatic, um, or at least a story consequence, that's when you pick up your dice. That's when you concern yourself with whether someone succeeds or fails. And the interesting thing, and I completely agree with him, I completely agree, and that's what got me thinking a lot about how often I'm making people make dice rolls and other things. This time when I ran 5th edition, I, for one, did not rely on a bunch of dice rolls. And for two, I set the DCs at a reasonable rate. Wait, most times I've run it before, I've been setting DCs at like 15 for a lot of in, you know, relatively um, inconsequential uh, you know, dice rolls, which is hard. I mean, it, it militates in favor of failure for that particular type of game. So um, that experience was just great. It was a really, really good experience running it. And I... Uh, uh, so it's Pathfinder 2. The, the reason I mention all that stuff about Pathfinder 2 is because while I did think about it, I also came to realize that this game is too much game for me, I think, as well, too. Unless we're, we're, we're capping at a certain level. When we played from 1st to 5th, I had so much fun running that game. As soon as we started getting past that, I really lost interest in it because it was the, the combats take for fucking ever in it, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Combat is very exciting in that game, especially thrilling ones, but it's hard to have an inconsequential uh, combat encounter. And it's also, it's also really difficult to have a half-and-half, half, you know... Um, uh, kind of uh, encounter where there's partly, you know, like the interrogation that got rough or a, a chase and uh, and a beating. That stuff, which runs quite easily in 2E, 2nd uh, edition or 5th uh, edition, um, it really doesn't work very, very well because, you know, the the game requires the, the combat mechanics in, in Pathfinder 2 in the same way they were with Pathfinder, or not Pathfinder, with uh, D&D 4th. They require you to make specific gamist decisions about the characters to set up, like, you know, how bosses function and things like that, that can prove contrary to the negative, you know, to the narrative. And in a really obtrusive way, as opposed to, say, like the legendary encounters from, from 5th edition. Um, the 5th edition, uh, I, I use legendary encounters for one of the uh, monsters in the... Uh, not legendary encounters, legendary actions. Uh, if you, and I mean, I can't imagine why anyone listening to this would not be uh, familiar with those. But basically, what they are is, uh, it's intent. Originally, it was it was uh, designed for high level adversaries to feel present. They're supposed to be boss fights to make them feel present in um, you know uh, throughout the the combat turn. 
It's things that the, the adversary can do during the player's turn. So players takes a turn, and then not on the adversary's turn, they can then take an action before the next player takes an action. For like dragons or you know kraken or other big things. But it's also it's easy to scale it down uh, for lesser adversaries and to make for a really fun and challenging uh, single you know uh, creature. I, I used um, mine to make a flaming a wraith, a fire wraith, and it was pretty cool. It, it was a great encounter. The the boss felt like a boss, I think, without engage, without it becoming too gamist, you know? Because, um, I mean, 4th edition definitely felt that way where, you know, players would track how many action points the the, uh, the monster had used and things like that. And, like, it, um, I don't know, it was, it was a seamless interaction. And it's an idea that I can definitely steal for 2nd edition AD&D or for Pathfinder 1. Um, I wouldn't steal that for Pathfinder 2 because it doesn't need that. Pathfinder 2, you just put in a monster that's three or four or five, if you really want to push the limits, uh, levels higher than the players, and it will already feel like a boss fight. They'll have a lot more hit points, they'll hit a lot harder, they'll crit more often, It's going to be, and they'll be a lot more uh, difficult to affect. Um, Starfinder, for that matter, as well, too, works uh, pretty well like that. Not quite as well as uh, Pathfinder 2, but still pretty darn good. So, anyway, the... Uh, so that led me to, to conclude, all right, Pathfinder 2nd is not really what I would be looking for to, to replace that. Um, but what about uh, Pathfinder 1 or 5th uh, edition? 5th edition is definitely a, a really, really solid game. I, I think that it is uh, it plays very, very light on its feet. I would not use it for the style of old school play that I have uh, been running in, say, Night Below or... Um, what do you call it? Uh, Night Below or in um, uh, brr, 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 uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard. Uh, however, um, I, I don't think it's... I think you could do it that way. And the interesting thing about 5th edition is I feel like having seen more people join the Discord server uh, who have been talking about 5th, it is hacked so much more often than what, say, Pathfinder was. If you used, uh, at least in the popular you know sphere... Um, fifth edition players, and I could be totally wrong about this because I don't really play with a lot of fifth edition players, but they don't seem quite as hell bent on there being a correct way to run the game, you know, as there is with Pathfinder, first edition players. Pathfinder, I mentioned the channel before, like, but like the, as much as I really do enjoy Paizo's games, I really, the, at least the, the fans who lurk on their forums are more negative than they are positive. I've met some wonderful people uh, through the pa the Paizo kind of Pathfinder 1 fan community who have become regulars on our channel. Great people, great players. Um, but holy shit, is there a lot of negativity and holy shit, is there a lot of like, this is the way you do it. Any other way to make a decision. There's one way to build a X, you know, type of, of like say an evoker. There's a way to build an evoker. There's a way to build a rogue. If you want to play a character who's doing damage in combat, why are you playing this one? This is stupid, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I, I hate that attitude. I, it drives me completely bonkers. The It's the same thing that sucked the fun out of a lot of uh, World of Warcraft for me. Um, when I discovered that, I, I love that, that video game, but the hardcore scene with, with the people doing running the stats and shit like that, it's fucking exhausting. Uh, you know, it's just way to suck the fun out of the game and, f and make it feel as if you're playing your game wrong. Like, it's just ridiculous. But Pathfinder 1... I've had a misfire with it. I've had misfires with it in the last two years, but I've also had really, really good sessions with it, you know. And uh, it's um, I it's another one of those things. Just like the the issue with 
hold person, you know, the level of complexity, the level of crunch that you want in the character creation, in the character sheet of what you're doing at the table and the different options you have available to you and the complexity of the, of the, of the uh, rules that you're using, all of that stuff needs to be set to the expectations of the players, right? Like all that stuff is a sliding scale. There's no such thing as too much or too little or whatever. It is if it is appropriate for the players, if it's right for the players and for the, uh, the table, I should say, then that is the correct decision, you know? And um, Pathfinder 1, uh, it's a weird thing that I just, because of, in the same way that I run, you know, I, I'm never at my most dogmatic than when I'm trying to run an, an a, a adventure path. I really try and follow it along on the specific path that they do and blah, blah, blah. Same with modules. I'm, I'm so re reluctant to to hack modules, whereas like I often, that's exactly what I do as soon as I start running them. Um, but to, from the get-go, I, I try to hew as close as I can to the modules. And it's the same thing with the rules in Pathfinder 1. A lot of times I just, because I've had uh, the one group of, of Pathfinder players that I have play, run for most recently, a lot of them uh, were, you know, complained about like, well, no, 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 you can't do, you can't change the way tax of opportunity work because it'll invalidate a lot of character decisions. And I was like, all right, well, you know, you guys play this game more than I do, so I, I'll, I'll defer to that. And now I'm feeling like, no, oh, why the fuck? No, <laughs> that's just the way it is. I mean, if it, if it has the, uh, if I decide to change the way attacks of opportunity work or change the way knowledge works or whatever else, um, I would change that the way I, you know, you do in any other game. It, Pathfinder, the, the real fan base for Pathfinder has a strange dogmatic obsession with the game. And, and well, it's not strange, it's completely understandable because the game when all those moving parts move properly, you can make really interesting and empowering decisions about your character, both how you construct them and how you play them at the table that make for a really, um, a really, really, uh, I, I imagine satisfying experience because you're getting precisely what you had planned for and you see your decisions pay off. Those smart tactical decisions you made in building your character and how you play them all pays off. Um, that is not me though. Like I, I love building characters, but I love building characters to, to concept and stuff like that. And yeah, you can build characters to concept and have them be effective and strong characters. Our buddy, John, uh, who plays in the channel, he definitely does that. It's, it's interesting characters with good mechanical, uh, heft to them. But, um, the thing I, the thing I've only had a chance to do a couple of times so far is to run Pathfinder one, the way that I run every other game, which is to say pretty fast and loose you know, to not necessarily be imposing all the rules, but to have the, the structure of those rules behind them. And the thing that has got me back to Pathfinder 1 again is that middle ground, right? Is I wonder if Pathfinder 1 is a good middle ground between um, a more punishing old school style of play and a more, um, you know, uh, player focused modern style of play. Uh, the reason I think, I think so as well is that it does still have a lot of those like um harsh rules not harsh rules mechanics but i mean like it's a little harder to build a really you know invulnerable character in pathfinder pathfinder characters don't seem to be quite as durable as what uh say um you know and i guess hold on like that's a stupid thing i don't that's a no i just said earlier that you know characters any no character is too durable not durable enough I guess the thing is, the, the, the major difference is between 5th edition, which leaves a, a fair amount of stuff to the character, you know, gives you a, a good, decent amount of crunch for building your characters, but not nearly as much as you get with, say, Pathfinder 2 or Pathfinder 1. But Pathfinder 1 is, I think, because of the lack of short rests, because of those types of things, it hews closer 
to traditional style of play and and um, does not have quite as much gamist mentality to it. It also gives a really sh- uh, it gives a huge amount of, of really interesting stuff for characters to play uh, early on. I, I recently created uh, Pathfinder one versions of our uh, Night Below characters uh, just because as a thought exercise to see what those characters would look like, and it was fascinating to see how much stuff they could do. You know, like there was a, a lot of really interesting capabilities they had. And I've been rewatching today the um, our Pathfinder First Edition Innistrad campaign from, or not campaign, it was three sessions from last last time. And seeing how much fun the players had and watching the debrief afterwards where they were saying like how they felt about the complexity of the characters. Now, in the same way that right or wrong, I know that one of my players, Jason Hobbs, my buddy, said uh, after the... Um, our Eberron game that, you know, it felt like the good level of complexity. He had a lot, a lot of stuff on his character sheet, but not so much as to overburden him. I, I expect that he might feel overburdened with the amount of stuff that you see on a comparable level Pathfinder 1 character sheet because there's a lot of little, you know, like little modifiers and stuff like that. But the thing is, I think, is that with Pathfinder 1, with the exception of certain major, you know, abilities or whatnot, you don't need to remember every little you know, bonus or whatnot. It doesn't matter. If you forget a plus one here, a plus two there, you're going to, you know, when you look at your character sheet again, you'll probably remember it afterwards. And the thing I also like about it is that almost every old school magic item, because it follows through as a evolution of third edition, almost every magical item from the the second, second edition, it's carried forward as well too. And making those characters, it really made me think like, I'm so hardwired with third edition games because I started playing third edition as soon as it came out. Um, because of the third, uh, you know, um, the, the way third edition made you think of what was the right amount of money to have and, and whatnot. And I unloaded on, on Hobbs and another thing, unfortunately, over, uh, complaining about what should, you know, how characters should feel or should be more powerful, how much magic items they should have. And that really killed my, uh, part of my joy in our Starfinder game was, uh, some of my players complaining about, um, not having enough stuff. Well, if I had more gear, if I had more gear, and it's a very gear-driven game, and the players were very conscious of that, and it just drove me fucking crazy, because it's like just, you know, when we're in the middle of a combat and start bitching about what you have or don't have in the game, like, then, ugh, it just, it, the belly, and it's not belly aching, because, I mean, whatever, everyone, everyone feels the way they do, they want to feel about their game, but to complain about the, you know, the gear you have or whatnot, too, is just, it's a kind of metagaming that just, it drives me nuts, because, I mean, it's just something that you will never be satisfied with. You know, they're, um, it's a kind of need uh, that they'll not be, or at least, I mean, maybe they would be, but I just feel, you know, if really what you want to just get is just get more gear and it's affecting every moment of your play, why are you playing? Like, it just, uh, I mean, those players left the game, so I guess they're not playing anymore. <laughs> but, you know, um, in, in a similar way, there was, uh, you know, what I think of, when I think of <coughs> Pathfinder 1, and third is that that uh, idea that certain characters should have certain levels of of gear but why like you know like i mean partly why because of the the economy that you can because you can sell things but why the hell can't i do what i do in AD&D second and not give out magic items that give plus 1 plus 2 plus whatever Although, like, those don't really break the game for, for that level. Uh, Pathfinder 2, it absolutely breaks the game because of the way magic items work in that, and because of the way math works in that. But Pathfinder 1, it doesn't break the game as much as it does, uh, in, or any more so than what it does in AD&D 2nd, and that hasn't affected me. And similarly with higher-level uh, items, too. 
Higher level items, especially those that don't recharge automatically, if you give a higher level item to a low level character, they're not going to be able to recharge that sucker. So you give them a cool disposable item effectively, or at least something they cannot really uh, make regular use of until they reach a certain level. So handing out things like, say, you know, um, you know, staves to low level characters or things like that. No, you know, if, if I don't think about the balance of, of money and I don't think about the balance of, uh, combat encounters, and I don't think about the balance of other elements of the game, you know, um, then I don't know. I mean, like, just, I, I feel like if I'm ignoring the things that, that are always that I, that call to me to play that game in a specific way, I wonder whether I would have, as I did with our, um, our Innistrad, uh, session, you know, I'd have a really good time with that game while also having the player balance, that, that kind of balancing factor that the players feel like they want, you know, the, or at least some of the players, it's not, uh, to be clear, it's not that everyone wants that. It's just, I, you know, if a player, uh, takes the time to tell you something that is not working for them, uh, that means it's really not working for them. You know, at least if, unless you're playing with, with characters who are belly acres, then uh, you, you got to listen to that stuff and consider that stuff. And the recent experience, not only the, the negative, but also the positive. And having my players tell me, you know, that they really, really enjoyed the um, the Eberron game, the other one shot, uh, and particularly the Eberron one. Like they said, they enjoyed the, the Savage World one, but the Eberron one was that, you know, players were, were agreeing at, right afterwards that it was one of our strongest campaigns or strongest uh, sessions that we've ever had. And that really says something, you know, and that, that says something uh, where all those different disparate elements that make up a good session all come together. Story, performance by the players, mechanics, setting, you know, all that stuff. So, and we did have that with our, our Innistrad game as well, too. And part of that is, I'm not, uh, you know, in comparison to the current ongoing games I've got, it is a bit of apples to oranges because it's a one shot. Obviously, is a very different animal than a than an ongoing game. But I really want to make sure I learn lessons from this stuff, both the positive and the negative, where players are, are dissatisfied or players are really pleased to help make for better ongoing games. So that's the very very long. It's almost an hour's lead in. So now let's talk about what the actual RPG a day uh, topics uh, are. All right, so what on earth did all of that have to do with our RPG a day themes of beginning, change, vision, and thread? Well, here's my half-ass way of tying all that together. Beginning means, uh, to me, in light of everything that I've uh, talked about here, beginning means you need to be clear from the beginning as to what assumptions you're making in all aspects of your, your game, all aspects of your campaign, what rules to expect uh, both uh, from the get-go and also as you're going along, in particular for games, uh, for uh, rules that will have a specific consequence of the player's play experience. And you need to be mindful of what the play experience is going to be like. And that's not necessarily from the get-go, uh, it, you know, that uh, if you get it wrong it's at the start, then it's it's irretrievably wrong. You know, um, I would say that it's something that is a definitely a, a moving goalpost. You know, um, one of the things that I have found over the last uh, couple of years of running games, particularly for the longest running ones, and the people who have, the players who I've played with who have kept coming back to the table, is that the dialogue and the shift 
uh, in campaigns and the changes that you make, uh, it is completely reasonable to be um, talking about that as an ongoing thing. If you get it wrong at the, at the get-go, someone had recently actually, this is an, an aside, but someone had recently said uh, something about my uh, um, the campaign I had been running for Delta Green, and it was uh, that one I've talked about on the um, podcast before, but the, the nutshell version, if you are new or if you forgot about it, um, the campaign was an effort to fuse to, together the drag uh, Dracula dossier game with, uh, or a campaign, uh, Dra- uh, Dracula Unleashed. Is that what it's called? No, no. It's called uh, the Dracula dossier. For It's originally published for Knights of Black Agents, but I wanted to use it with my uh, Delta Green campaign. Uh, the sort of uh, Cthulhu or Lovecraft meets uh, X-Files type uh, game. And um, the the that was an, uh, that was not successful and not only because of the the way i presented it uh, but there's there's just bad fit with uh, some of the players as well too in, in terms of like i didn't make it clear what we were expected to do the players i think floundered to a degree in it and it's, one of the viewers said uh, was really upset about it and said that uh, you know you really should uh, you shouldn't give up on it so quickly and things like that and i mean uh, i guess like you know one of the things is, is i did not give up on it uh, so quickly i i really uh, i had given great consideration into it. But when you know a campaign's not working, you know, um, I, I don't hesitate to pull the pin on it. But there's a different thing to that than to sort of writing the ship on a campaign. And that's where the, uh, I think the change comes in. Change doesn't mean end. Change doesn't mean you change games. Change doesn't mean you give up uh, things that have come from before. Change can be new beginnings. Change can be a way of reinvigorating uh, something that... Uh, may have gone grown stale or may have just not even stale but may have gone off track you know sometimes there are changes that happen in a campaign or things that affect the campaign that just are, are irretrievable it's, it's things that irrevocably change the way that a campaign is going but you know one of the nice things with role-playing games is that we're always making pretend and we can pretend that something didn't happen if we choose to um recently i, I heard well after the kind of hubbub of what happened with uh, adam coble's uh, streaming kind of uh, endeavors, um, it, it came out that, like, they had actually done, not not the, the you know, salacious elements of, uh, of that particular uh, story, I don't want to weigh in one way or the other in, on that, um, but the um, the thing that was interesting was that they, they actually do edits in their in their games, like, they if they play through and something doesn't play out the way they want, or the, ideally, they'll go back and play through it again, and that, that to me is, I mean... It, it, it's not that much different, I guess, from, from playing a video game. It's just, to me, it seems strange to go back and try and edit the stuff. But there's nothing wrong with doing that. You know, there's no, there's no there's nothing wrong with saying, look, this stuff did not work for us. And we need to uh, redress what happened, you know. And the I think that change is not necessarily... Um, it's, it's not even not necessarily. Like, being... You can change things incrementally as the DM, but because it's a group endeavor, I think that it's also really beneficial to talk to the players about that and get their sense. I've mentioned, um, maybe not on the podcast before, but I have mentioned to my players that, look, uh, many of which make really, really excellent podcasts, but I often give them a miss because I don't want to, I don't want other people's voices in my head when I'm trying to design, trying to, to, you know, design for the campaign. And... The reason, and this, the the reason for that is is also is not only because the players the players who are recording the podcast are not so egotistical to uh, think that they're recording them just for me, 
you know, they're recording them based on their experiences and they're talking about broad generality. So I don't know for certain whether what they're talking about, um, Colin's podcast, uh, Arlen uh, Walker's podcast, Jason Haas's podcast. I don't know if they're talking specifically about my, my games that I've run. So I don't want to misread what's going on. Um, and if they are, if there is genuine bona fide problems or there's something that's come up that the player's are like, look, this is something that I did not, you know, it's not the way that I would like to be experiencing these stuff again. I'm, you know, um, I really credit Colin for contacting me directly about that. I had, I gave an invitation, but Colin had said a couple of things. Some of the other characters were, or other players gave a little more direct kind of like, well, this is the way things are. And Colin, uh, took it upon himself to contact me afterwards directly. And I really, really, really appreciated that, uh, because it, um, I had felt that things did not go quite the way that I had intended. And I didn't realize just how much how uh, dissatisfied he had been with the play experience for the last couple of things. I didn't, you know, um, uh, with a big group, you often don't think of how many people are, are sitting out. But, you know, um, and I think that uh, with other players, they would have been more vocal about <laughs> the fact that they were, you know, uh, like, oh, God damn it, again? I was just blah, 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 blah. But Colin is a very, very conscientious player. And, uh, and he's a DM, too. And so he, the way that he chose to address it was, you know, when it became a, a point where he, um, I had invited, uh, feedback and, uh, it was really helpful, you know, and then I brought what his, uh, what his comments were, uh, to the whole group as well, too. We got some really terrific feedback from some other people on that too. And it's hard sometimes as a DM to, to say that and see it not as criticism of you've done something wrong. Um, but it was, it was helpful. And, um, that's something that can help if there is, if the ship is drifting, if the, um, you know, if you just got yourself into the wrong, I keep using nautical metaphors. I come from a fucking landlocked city. I don't know why my metaphors are all nautical, but I mean, if things have drifted off course, then that's a good way of, of, of moving that ship back in the right direction, you know, either directly through the game or indirectly, you know, um, the, uh, it's a relatively minor, uh, in comparison to sort of some of the catastrophic stuff that's happened in some public streams otherwise, um, this is, a, I think, a relatively minor thing. But, I mean, when the player is not getting the play experience that they signed up for, uh, this is, it's obviously important to make sure that you're redressing that. So, um, what does that mean for, then, vision and thread? Well, for one, vision is, I think that if I'm being honest with myself, I have been, for some of my ongoing campaigns, not so much for the Night Below campaign, um, uh, but for some of the other campaigns, I really have been writing for the episode as opposed for writing for the season for some of these. And the Legacy of the Crystal Shard, I had the benefit of having the, um, for having the, the, uh, the broad strokes of the path forward laid out for me because of the, uh, um, what do you call it? Because of the way that the, the pre-generated adventure is, is set out. It's not very, you know, it's not, uh, uh, particularly rigorous mind you, but it, I mean, it, it gives me an idea of where, you know, the, the ship is going. That is not the case for Ash. And I, you know, we've had two pretty rough sessions on the players and a rough idea of where they're going. Uh, but, and which the players to the credit. I mean, like the players seem really eager to, to engage with, with where we're going. But, um, I think I'm going to bring up to them about, you know, sort of what, what I'm, I'm, I, 
to make sure that, that I'm getting the ship in the direction that they want to go uh, and ask them where they, not just to the characters, what they specifically want to do, but what the overall characters, uh, or players, I should say, or, yeah, the characters, what, what overall the characters want to be doing, where do they see the the game going, you know, and um, that's not the case for Night Below or for uh, Legacy of Crystal Shard, my other two ongoing games, but uh, for those ones, I think I want to do that. I also think that I, you know what, I... Uh, I'm getting back to one. So one of the reasons that we switched over to only, um, to only these sort of open table sessions is because for one thing, for weekly sessions, that's often an easier way to, uh, or biweekly, not biweekly, twice weekly sessions. That's often easier just to manage with uh, with a group of players to allow them to kind of come and go. So I, um, you know, I set up a, a the both of Legacy of Crystal Shard and, and Night Below specifically that way, so players can jump in, jump out. Um, the more, the, and, the, and the real reason I did that is because it is a hell of a lot easier to run a uh, open, like a sandbox kind of game that way, um, with a bit of a an, an, uh, through story that's going on, um, and not have to worry about trying to explain why, well, so-and-so was, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so was turned off, uh, the, oh, what is going on here? Uh, so-and-so was, uh, off the, um the, um, excuse me, someone that's always off the, uh, missing the session for, uh, for the day. So they are going to, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, I, whatever story I, I had focusing on them is going to have to take a, a pass, you know, and I'll think about something else to do for the rest of the party. Uh, in addition, um, the, um, the way that, uh, the, um, oh gosh, I'm, forgive me, I, I lost my train of thought. Um, the what I was saying is that the right those campaigns were set up that way because of running into problems like you know getting a year into our Starfinder campaign and then finding that you know players were dropping out and we were having to figure out how to struggle for. It. There were other problems with that particular campaign as well too. But I mean, the uh, one of the problems was loss of players. Same thing with a couple of other campaigns that we had. Uh, or short adventures, you know, uh, that we had where the players just, um, it was, it was challenging because we were losing, uh, some of our, our, uh, players. Um, but I think that I'm thinking now a couple that I, I think I'd like to try another ongoing campaign. And I think I might want to try again with my Iron Gods game. Now I have uh, I fucked it up last year with uh, what I was running, and I didn't do a terribly good job of uh, running the game. Uh, I think we set a good uh, tone or good uh, a good couple of opening sessions. I I know how I want to start that campaign off, um, but the that particular attempt at running uh, Iron Gods, and if you're not familiar with Iron Gods, Iron Gods is the sort of science fantasy um, adventure path for. Um, Pathfinder. It's it's my all-time favorite adventure path for uh, Pathfinder First Edition. I, I absolutely adore that uh, the story. I adore the uh, setting. I just, I just love everything about it. Um, and last time we tried to run it, it was um, um, we had I we ended up going off, but largely because of one particular player was really really a bad fit with how I wanted to run the game. And uh, uh, I 
ended up uh, abandoning the game because the players I had advertised it initially as being a uh, a game that I was going to run as basically like rules as written and now knowing myself now and knowing what I think I would like to do with it I would definitely uh, be clear from the outset that I'm going to run Pathfinder the way I run everything else which is to say I'm going to change shit if I'm going to run feel that things either on the fly or I'll change things as we go along because I want to make sure that the I want to try and get the, the game to be the best um, the, to fit the experience that I have in mind for the campaign and um, also because I think that uh, if at least for the low level stuff um, I, I think that I would really 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 enjoy having run a couple you know a year and a bit now of uh, AD&D and Ash uh, those are awesome games and the crunchiness with them and the and the tactical depth that's with them is not terribly far off from what to expect from Pathfinder uh, the old the difference being of course the complexity of the characters but I'm not that's on the player's side not on my side and I think that um, oh another thing I've realized too is I think that starting off with with for one rolling characteristics is going to be a big deal uh, and uh, also um, letting them roll for high characteristics they have higher bonuses with everything I'm, I'm totally okay with that and I think that the um, there are a set of rules called the mythic uh, adventures rules that sort of uh, bake in a more powerful version of uh, Pathfinder characters and I really 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 liked how those worked in our um, what do you call it in our um, uh, Innistrad uh, one shot really they worked terrifically well um, so that's what I'm thinking, and I mean, I don't know where that's, I don't want to uh, bump any of our existing campaigns for that, and I got a whole bunch of, um, charity sessions that are, uh, need to get, I need to get done, uh, as well as some other one-shots that I really want to try for some new games, so I can finally start talking about some games other than AD&D, or, uh, otherwise D&D-based fantasy games, um, but that's, uh, I, I think I'd really like to try something that is, the, the experience with, uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard has been fantastic. I really, really enjoyed that campaign. Uh, I like the way that that, stru- that campaign was structured. The play experience um, from these uh, OSR games too. The low-level play is phenomenal. I, I absolutely, I really, really love them. And um, the thing I'm concerned with is the mid-to-high-level play because some of the, if the players are are not uh, complaining but having a problem with. Um, spells that are coming in like, you know, uh, hold person and whatnot, uh, because adversaries are going to have those access to all the spells the players do, and as we get to each new sort of tier of play, it's only going to get worse, you know, like the, um, disintegration spells and shit like that, like that, that stuff just gets worse as we get higher level, and it's sort of, that is, the stakes, uh, and the margin of error for players gets a hell of a lot, the stakes get a hell of a lot higher, because they've invested more time in seeing those characters develop, and the uh, margin of error for a lot of those games is a lot thinner, uh, whereas the uh, there's other games like, you know, um, those more modern games like Pathfinder, 4th Edition, Pathfinder 2, uh, D&D 5th, they allow for that margin of error. And you may ask, well, hold on, if you're, if you just said you had so much fun with 5th Edition, why on earth would you be thinking of running Pathfinder? I don't have a good answer for that right now. I think that um, D&D 5th, I, I've really definitely come to appreciate, and I can't wait to get uh, Eberron uh, back to the table again with that, and there's a couple other things I'd like to try as well, especially some of those magic settings, like um, the uh, 
Guildmasters of Ravnica or Guildmasters Guide to Ravnica and uh, the newest one. And also returning to Innistrad would be really cool. And and, and I guess uh, part of it too really comes down to the players. Like I I, I may run um, Pathfinder First Edition again and find that it's hot garbage and I don't enjoy it. And that the fiddly bits because what even in in honesty watching the uh, the Innistrad session again did remind me that there was a lot of there was a fair amount of time we were talking about modifiers before each thing. So combat does take a fair amount of time. But it does in AD&D 2E as well, too. So I don't really think that the combat would run any shorter. So that's about, like, change in beginning. But vision and thread, I need to have, for one, keep my eye on the season. Keep my, my, uh, my eye on the overall game. Not just the, uh, you know, the individual... Um, not just the individual session. Keep an eye on where we are in the progress, and 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 again, I'm talking about story in the sense of there are other adver- there are other characters who have uh, goals and ambitions that they're working towards, and that by interacting with the characters' own goals and ambitions, they will be thwarting them or interfering with them. And I also think that um, that the um, what he calls that the uh, uh, the thread is keeping the story going for uh, keeping it like an ongoing narrative and story going. One of the things that the leg of the night below campaign does, it's a slow burn and I'm enjoying the shit out of it. And the faster payoff and faster turn through story that we saw in, or we see in our um, legacy, of the crystal shard game, which still really is not all that particularly fast. Cause I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, two major kind of story arcs or relatively major story arcs that have taken 26 sessions to kind of get through. And one of them isn't even really concluded yet. Um, so that's a, a lot of, um, that's a, a long time, but in comparison to the speed that um, story progresses in our, in those one shots, particularly in the Eberron one felt really, really good. And um, I've mentioned on the podcast before about writing, for one shots, why can't they all feel like one shots? And it's a good question. You know, why can't we make every session feel, in, uh, in, you know, very consequential and very important? And I mean, not necessarily in the same high action kind of way, but like you walk away from every session feeling like something was progressed here, you know, and not just, oh, we had a training session or we had whatever. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, um, I, I've got a, I, I, I have the rules written for conversions for uh, the, what do you call it, for the uh, Pathfinder for Iron Gods, at least the first adventure, all converted over to 5th edition as well too, a previous project from about four or five years ago. But um, I uh, I don't know whether, and maybe I should bring it to the players as well too. Uh, well, not maybe, I, I mean, obviously I should, but also I think that I would like to get a couple more one-shots of fifth edition and of Pathfinder one under my belt to get a sense of which one might be right. It's odd to think that I w- I'm so, you know, not determined, but so kind of sort of resigned. Maybe that's not the right word. Um, uh, I've reconciled the, the, the uses that I think I will put Pathfinder second edition to Pathfinder second edition will be for uh, fun, thrilling uh, one shots, but I'm unlikely to use that particular game for any, uh, ongoing games anytime soon just because it's uh 
it, it just, I, I think that the game, for me, for the style of play that I want, is going to be untenable at uh, at higher levels. I, I don't really enjoy the the level of complexity we get with the game once we hit that, uh, you know, that uh, higher level tier after five, or like not even higher level, like mid-level tier, sixth level, seventh level, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I mean, that I think is an interesting... Uh, some interesting things for me to think about and uh, some good plans for going forward uh, for uh, figuring out what a, a more story focused game might be. Now I might, you know, I might, I might uh, change my mind on this and try to go back or not to go back to, but stick with second edition uh, for the next campaign we run to. But um, knowing that uh, at least one player has had, and I mean, we've had it happen a couple of times before in our second edition games too, where just the, the, brutal consequence of the second edition rules uh, is pretty punishing. Uh, and I, I'm lumping Ash in with this because it's an old school game. It's punishing for characters, particularly for an on, like a long-term campaign. Um, the death of the one character in our Ash game that was dramatic was not planned. That was, a, it, it ended up being um, quite, uh, you know, it had some, some heft to it and had meaning in the story, but that wasn't planned. <laughs> it was... A lucky byproduct, you know, it just so easily could have died at the hands of a random encounter too. So, so I don't know. I mean, like, um, if I, I'm, I'm with our Ash uh, game, I do need to definitely uh, get a sense of what the players are uh, wanting out of that going forward because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm offering that and that they're getting the experience that they want and that it's an experience that I want to give. And um, I'm really interested in seeing how the players might respond to me running uh, my house rule version of Pathfinder 1, you know, something with uh, my own house rules in it with some of the, just to try it again, you know, and run it the way, not not stick in the dogmatic mode of a Pathfinder, quote-unquote, Pathfinder player, you know, um, running everything as precisely as written, but really doing that sort of off-the-cuff sort of clue together exciting thing that uh, I, I really did enjoy with our Innistrad uh, trilogy. So anyway, that's what I'm thinking here. So the, and the thread needs to be that they're, um, that's it. I think I've beaten those uh, three uh, concepts to death now. So let's uh, make with our outro. All right. So that I think brings us to the end of the episode. Um, as is always the case, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this episode or regarding the, uh, any of the games I, recommended or not recommended mentioned in here discussed uh or if you have any uh insights as well too that i should consider that i have not considered thus far as well too please do not hesitate to uh shoot me a voice message on anchor or you can uh find me on twitter at dungeon musings or you can shoot me a uh email my email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you're listening to this during the current uh, COVID crisis, I hope that this finds you healthy, safe, and weathering the current crisis as well as can be expected. And until I hear you again, happy gaming.